the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pion. I'm Sarah Pion, your host, and today we have Rochelle Gordon on the show. She's a cannabis and psychedelics writer and editor of GreenState.com. Welcome, Rochelle. I'm really excited to have you here today to be able to geek out with you. And I just, you know, just starting out, I just want you to know that I just really appreciate, like, I've been following your writing for several years, and I just really love what you do. So I'm glad that we're getting a chance to sit down and talk and just, you know, geek out. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. I super respect what you do as well and love the show and really excited to be on. So yeah, let's get to it. Yay, thanks. Um, First question, what was your first cannabis experience? Oh my gosh. So when I was in high school, um, a lot of my friends consumed, but I was a little bit of a... Um, a little bit of a scaredy cat, I suppose, a little bit of the dare mentality was still inside of my head. So I was, I kind of eschewed drugs and alcohol when I was a kid. I was like, oh, you guys are lame. Like drinking beer is lame and smoking pot is lame. Um, But then I started to realize as I met more friends who consumed that, hey, like these people are nice, you know, we're all normal. We're all just having a good time. And so I finally got up the courage to try cannabis. Um, I was going to a party with a friend of mine and the party hadn't really started yet. And he said, let's go to the cemetery and smoke pot. Oh, that's a classic. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I was like, okay, you know what? I'm down. So we went out and we smoked and I didn't really have any uh, effect initially. I didn't really feel it. And then we went to another place and smoked again. And then I was definitely high and I didn't want to go to the party. I just wanted to go home And I got there and my little sister and her friend were hanging out and she um, had gotten, they'd gotten one of those, like, remember those big cookies? Um, Those like, um, like cake cookies almost like for celebration. They had one for some reason. And I literally ate the whole thing. (laughs) And then they just laughed at me. They're like, you're stoned. Um, You have the munchies. Um, And that, then it was just game on from there. Well, I think it's like, it's nice that you knew that you weren't comfortable enough to go out and be social and you went home and you took care of your needs. But how'd you feel after that big ass cookie? I loved it. <laughs> it was delicious. Um, and then I went to bed um, and pretty soon after I started smoking fairly regularly, having lots of snacks afterwards. And I just instantly loved it. Um, I had experimented a little bit with alcohol before that. And I just really, really liked the way cannabis made me feel. It did not make me feel depressed. It didn't make me feel hungover. I didn't have to go to the bathroom a million times in one night. Like it was just, it was it. And I was just, yeah, instantly enamored for sure. I I totally understand that one. I, I found that, I mean, I used cannabis when I was younger. I took a break and then I used it pretty regularly as an adult, not as much as like, say, we do now or our our esteemed colleagues. Um, It wasn't an everyday part of my life. It was more like a puff on the weekends. But when I went through my cancer experience, it's not that I couldn't drink. You just don't feel like it. And then I realized that I much preferred the euphoric effects of cannabis to just kind of wind down and not feel like crap the next day. Mm -hmm. And when you were mentioning the whole thing around D.A.R.E., it kind of made me laugh because my um my cousin Rachel grew up during the dare time. She's she's ten years younger than I am. And she when she was a kid, she got an ear infection and she her doctor wanted her to take I think it was like penicillin and antibiotics. And mm. she was like t- she was tiny at this point in time and she looked at her mom and she's like, Say no to drugs. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, wow, that just went in a direction that I don't think anyone thought would happen. But, you know, it's it's amazing, like, how many of our colleagues were, you know, influenced by D.A.R.E. and that they still exist. I mean, it's I, – I just think that, yes, it's good to have the conversation, especially with young minds, 
that you know you sh- you should stay away from substances that will affect your brain during critical times of your development but i also think that and and you know it's like i'm i'm sure a lot of people have talked about this but letting children know the truth like when i had crosby on the show and asked him one of our listeners had a question about how do you talk to your kids about cannabis and he's like tell them the truth because we really need to empower people with information so they can make decisions for themselves. And then it's demystified. Because for me, as a kid, if you told me not to do something, I was going to turn around and do it. Yes. You know? <laughs> totally. No, totally. You're absolutely right. You know, we have, to, we have to reduce the stigma, remove the stigma. And it starts when you're young. You're totally right about that. What what made you decide to get into cannabis as a job and re- and writing and all of that? So it's sort of an interesting journey. I used to be in education, actually, and was working with kids and was, you know, consuming after school, obviously, um, in the evening time and um, ran into some issues and had to stop teaching. And I started doing writing as kind of a side hustle. Um, I always found it fairly easy in college and in high school, and I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And I started doing some kind of SEO writing about education and sustainability, things like that, and realized I had a knack for it, made it my full-time job. And then as the legal industry started to happen, I started to find gigs within that space and fast forward, you know, right place, right time. And I was able to make a full-time career out of it and had the chance to travel all over North America as markets came online and built up a great network. And yeah, it ended up being my destiny, which I never would have thought, you know, um, I always thought I'd be a teacher. Um, And while I sometimes miss it, I still get to educate the masses. It's just, you know, in a more nuanced sort of way um, on plant medicine. And so it's been really an interesting journey and one that I wouldn't trade for anything. And I just really find it to be a major blessing. And I'm super humbled to be here and be able to spread the testimony about this plant medicine and educate people because there are so many people who could benefit from some accessible information about this plant. And I'm just really excited to be able to have that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that when you are looking at journalism and writing there should be that educational component in it because I mean I don't know if you've noticed this but lately it seems like there's a lot of stigma filled puff pieces that we're seeing and I'm I don't know where their sources are coming from but it's a lot of harmful information that is just creating more problems and I I honestly wonder like who's putting the money into that Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it seems like every single day, there's some sort of sensationalistic piece um, in the media about, you know, kids being sickened by gummies, and, you know, the dangers of high potency products, right? It's just like reefer madness 2.0. And so having the ability to counteract that, and offer some, you know, the benefits of the plant and some more objective pieces. I mean, obviously, these incidences are occurring, there's no doubt about that. But they don't have to be bombarded, you know, in our faces by the media, which is sort of what's happening right now. Um, so getting to be able, getting to balance that is is really great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I with the with the youth access component, working in policy, one of the things that I always mention to people is, if we were having a fully regulated cannabis environment, we wouldn't be having a lot of those issues. Like it's kind of like. You know how every Halloween it seems like people are saying, nobody wants to give your kids their drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody is sticking that in their trick-or-treat bag. It's expensive. But, you know, we need to have the conversations about realistic storage for people who are in environments where there are children. Or even, you know, the regulation of the the hemp market, the hemp-based Delta 8 products, those are very easy for children to get. And that's that's kind of the things that we should really be talking about. Yeah, absolutely. You're 100% right. I mean, those products are very easy to obtain. Um, and in these less legal markets, 
you know, it's oftentimes all people can get and you can buy them at the gas station. And, you know, I don't know if people are carting people, hopefully they wouldn't just be selling them to children straight up. But, you know, I do think that the onus is on us to educate. And, you know, I definitely am all in favor of responsible consumption and safe consumption and making sure that your products are located in a safe space, you know, out of reach of children. You know, I would hope that that would be obvious to people, but I understand that things happen. But so, you know, the better safe than sorry, for sure. I love all the um, containers that are coming out that are like locked boxes, you know, like with this, I have one from Stash Logics that has um, a little lock for the zippers. So unless you have the code, like you can't get into that thing. Like, I wish that they could just be standard issue. Like everyone just got one at the dispensary, right? <laughs> I know. That would be perfect. I, I and, and that's the thing. Like we, because there are so many products that, well, when I used to work in a dispensary, a lot of times people would say, can you give me something that doesn't taste like weed? So when you're looking at the different markets and you're in Minnesota, what are you seeing there? What would you, what are you hoping to see? What are the differences? What states have you been really enjoying experiencing the process of regulation and the products? I mean, these are a lot of questions I know. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and can you answer that in five words or less? <laughs> uh, so I'll start with Minnesota and the Midwest and then kind of work my way out. Um, So in Minnesota, they're in the process right now of trying to get a bill through um, to pass adult use. It's really, really close. Um, I think of during this recording, we're two committee stops away from full floor votes um, from both the Senate and the House, which is very, very exciting. I know that, um, you know, lawmakers here are very eager um, on the Democratic side to pass the bill. It's been flying through the committees left and right. And so that's very, very exciting. You know, it remains to be seen what will happen. Who knows? But if people here are very, you know, cautiously optimistic, it's been interesting to see the market here evolve with the hemp-based um, THC products. So last summer, um, they essentially regulated uh, hemp-derived Delta 9 edibles and beverages. And when they did that, the floodgates opened and a lot of the craft brewers here began to release their own alcohol-free Delta 9 THC seltzers and hard kombuchas and all kinds of things. And the people have just been, um, you know, flooding to these uh, brewers to get these products. Um, I went to a pop-up tap room where there were um, only hemp-derived beverages, no alcohol those days. It was a three or four-day event. The day that I went, it was packed, and I was told that it had been packed the entire time, and they could not believe the turnout. And speaking to some of the consumers there, they all kind of said the same thing. They said it was so nice to have a familiar environment, a taproom-type environment, where they could consume the beverage of their choice, not have to have alcohol, but feel normal um, and not feel ostracized and stuck inside their houses. You know, it was really, really cool to see. So, and I think because it's such a heavy drinking culture in the Midwest, you know, the beverages feel really familiar to people Mm -hmm. and it's a really great and accessible way for them to integrate cannabis into their lives. And so that's been really, really interesting. I'm excited to see how things play out um, with the bill. I know that the hemp industry in Minnesota really strongly feels that they'd like to be able to keep the momentum going with these products. Um, And as you know, with regulation, Things can certainly change, but it sounds like the way that they want the bill to go, they will be able to have these products um, and continue to sell them the way that they are. So that's really good. Um, as far as the other market evolution, you know, it, it's such an interesting game, you know, in each different state. It's been so difficult to, to watch as, you know, some states have gone up and down, you know, in, with overregulation and overtaxation and seeing, you know, markets like California really struggle um, with some of the regulations that were set forth. But then other states, you know, seem to be doing really well. It's been interesting to watch Missouri, you know, they just came online and I know, I don't think they're issuing any more licenses right now, but the sales are really robust. Um, Demand is really high. The price per pound of flour is up. So like, that's really cool to see. Um, As far as, I don't know if any markets have been really my favorites, but I will have to say that I feel like the cannabis in the Pacific Northwest is some of the best in the country. I love the products in Washington um, in Oregon, obviously, the flower from Northern California is also incredible, like the Emerald Triangle 
you know, is there's nothing like it in the world. Um, but yeah, and some, any, something about the Pacific Northwest. I don't know what it is, but they know what they're doing over there. Maybe it's like the mountain air. Maybe it's, yeah, it's got to be something something in the water. <laughs> it's really <Yeah>. good. <laughs> <laughs> and all the influence of all the, the back to land, to the land generation, like doing it for years and being able to pass down that knowledge too, I think is awesome. Of course, like, yeah. you know, growing up in the UP, I don't know if you know this, but near there's this little ghost town called Fayette that's on the way to the Mackinac Bridge and it's on this area called the Garden Peninsula and when I was going to college I went to school with a lot of kids that were from there that were kids of growers Mm. and every year they would grow and every year they would have raids and I was always like here of all places like where it's like winter mud a little bit of summer, mud, and winter? <laughs> like, how does that happen? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, but somehow they do it, right? And all these markets, too. It's like, really? Like, how? Like, you know, in Wisconsin as well, you know, my boyfriend is a hemp farmer, and they grow outdoors. And the growing season, obviously, is shorter. But, mm-hmm. um, and people are like, oh, but it gets so cold so fast. Like, yeah, it does. So they have to harvest quickly. But, um, but the flower is really, really good. Isn't that wild? It's, I mean, because yeah. it, for people who have never been to the Midwest, and especially the areas that you and I are from, probably don't understand that like October can start out balmy and within a day you can have a cold snap and snow for the rest of the year. Like, mm-hmm. I remember as a kid going trick or treating in a snowsuit. Same. <laughs> <laughs> that blizzard of 94 we like to talk about you know <laughs> exactly can you fit the costume over the snowsuit how will that work <laughs> you have to integrate your jacket into your costume I found as I grew older I was like okay I think one year like we all went as like pimps or something and literally just so we could wear big furry coats because it was going to be cold <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> One state that I found has been really fascinating is Oklahoma. I thought it was a really interesting study in how a cannabis, how cannabis regulation can be looked at almost from, I felt like it was almost a very libertarian approach to it, where it's like, you know, free market, let's just throw it out there, let's throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And I went to go see a client there a couple of years ago who was doing really well. He was just a, a lovely person with a great dispensary. Uh, but going down the street in Oklahoma City, there were all these empty storefronts that had been cannabis businesses. And so I, I wonder, because we see people reinventing the wheel over and over from the policy standpoint in each state. And I wonder what people will take away from what they did. Because I think I, I, I think back on a conversation I had with Angela Baca several years ago, who is just brilliant, brilliant writer, researcher. And she was talking about, you know, having a free market and deregulation. And that was I don't I don't I'll have to ask her how she feels about it now. But that was, you know, what she had mentioned at the time. And I feel like in many ways Oklahoma did their best interpretation of that while remaining regulated, you know, what were your, what are your thoughts on that? It's such a sticky space, you know, it's like a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, right? I know that speaking to farmers in the Emerald Triangle, you know, a lot of them have called for license caps, um, right? And I've heard that in other markets as well. But at the same time, it's one of those you know, give the people a fair shot and the cream of the crop will rise. So I don't really know where the, how we're going, how we're going to strike a balance, but it's been really interesting to watch. Um, You know, I visited Oklahoma kind of right before the bubble burst and I was shocked at how many dispensaries there were um, and how many people were excited to be in the game. Um, And then, you know, it wasn't much longer after that, that the, the tune had really changed. And so, yeah, I mean, I do believe personally, you know, in a, in a fair market model, but clearly when you have, you know, a flood of people entering the space, you know, then no one really succeeds. So I don't really know what like the right answer is, honestly, like, you know, how, how can we give everybody a fair chance Mm -hmm. while also setting the market up for success? You know, it's, it's really tricky. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I, I feel like 
we're seeing all these people who are interested in it, which to me is a call to, we have a lot of entrepreneurs out there that want to create generational wealth and they want to engage in something that they enjoy. And we're also seeing a lot of policies that instead of states creating policies and taxation schedules that would actually support the industry, support generational wealth and these independent businesses, which in turn would actually give the state more tax revenue, we're, I, it just seems like in many ways when we when cannabis comes into the conversation, the powers that be lose their common sense on how business is done. Yeah. Yeah, what? you're absolutely right about that. And I also think that there are ways to be a part of it without being a license holder, which is something I talk to people about a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't you can be in the weed game and not actually sell or grow weed, you know, like I'm in it and I don't touch the plant, right? And so that's something that I always encourage people to think about, right? Like it's a whole industry. There's a lot of ancillary companies um and needs for that, you know. You don't have to necessarily own a dispensary maybe you can build or design the dispensaries you know maybe you can be a consultant maybe you can do marketing like there's so many different ways to be involved and I encourage people to think about that as well I think that's a great thing to talk about um through the years people have asked me if I ever wanted to have a cannabis company or a dispensary and I've just having so many people I love connected to that part and just knowing that there are nights they have sleepless nights just worrying about all these different things I have never had any desire to do anything plant touching. Working with people who are plant touching, I adore. I would not want to deal with all the hassle that goes around that. And especially because when we're looking at investors and and banking and all these different things that happen, I, I know so many people who have had to go to outside investors to support their businesses. But because cannabis is this hot word, and everybody still thinks there's a green rush. And I, for those of you listening, the green rush was over six years ago. It was over when people weren't, you know, moving packs and wondering if they were getting raided. That's when people were making money. Now mm -hmm. we're not seeing that. And it's, it's, it's just a really interesting thing. So if people want to invest, they really have to think about the long game. They are not going to get their money back right away. And I think that that's caused a lot of problems too. And I'm sure it's busted up more than a few relationships. Yeah, definitely. The more cooks you have in the kitchen, right, the more chaotic it can be and the pressures. And, you know, I, I don't envy the people who have had to deal with that and that kind of struggle. And it's hard to watch, you know, sometimes when, there's a big influx flux of cash into a business and there's a lavish launch and a, you know, a wonderful after party at MJ biz or something. And then six months later they're broke, you know, it's happened so many times you and I have both seen it. And I don't necessarily think that the consumers understand that that's a thing. You know, I talk to so many consumers and they assume that we're all rich. Yeah. And I'm like, and I'm like, no, I'm like, you know, if you're, if you're breaking even at this point, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> That really is it. It's, I always just want to, like, if I can maintain a humble existence doing what I love and I'm not eating cat food as an old lady, <laughs> I feel like we're good. <laughs> yeah, I just need enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. But I mean, I, now thinking about like what we're talking about, if somebody could do like a master class on everything that you should anticipate if you wanted to have a cannabis business or invest in it, there is a great ancillary business. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to those talks. <laughs> we've, been, we've been seeing a lot of things around uh, THC related taxation. And I actually just had a really great conversation with a researcher about this the other week. And I think this is where it comes to people like you and me and our colleagues educating people about the fact that everybody thinks THC is the one indicator of strength. And it's so different than that. It's You can have something with a higher percentage but have a terpene profile that makes it functional. You can have something like I've had 13% THC in flowers but a fascinating terpene profile so it feels much stronger than it is. And so the idea that 
they're trying to eke more money out of things by creating these THC taxes, which I get it. Like some people, because they don't understand, they see it as more of a public health, public safety thing. Other people, I believe, are just trying to figure out all the different ways that they can create taxation to pull you know, money towards other things, which, as we both know, the more you tax, the less you get. And mm-hmm. on top of it, like, you know, everybody wants to pretend that, you know, the medical market's gone away and everything's adult use. And they want to forget the patients that are the reason that we're able to do our jobs today. We've done it on their backs. And the fact that adult use actually has drawn more people using it for wellness and symptom management without having the hassle of dealing with a doctor the the THC taxes would actually punish the people who need it the most. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I was just having the same conversation, like literally the same conversation. You know, I'm so concerned um, for the medical patients and where the market is heading. You know, they're really being left behind. And it's already so cost prohibitive the way things are right now to get this medicine. And when you implement these taxes, you're only going to shut more people out. And to your point, it's just so unfair. And that's one thing that I really want to see changed in our industry is to make these products more accessible to people, you know, especially for folks who are on a limited income or a fixed income. If you can choose between a cannabis product or, you know, a $3 copay on a pharmaceutical and you don't know where maybe your next paycheck's coming from. How are you supposed to make that choice? How can you justify the cannabis? Even if you know it'll make you feel better than the pills, if you just can't afford it, how can you make that work, right? And so it's something that I think about all the time. And I think too many markets are forgetting the medical patients and not encouraging them to get licenses. I know that I was talking to um, Guy from Papa and Barkley about this for an article I recently wrote for MG. And he was like, so many dispensaries don't even make that information accessible to people, you know, letting them know like, hey, did you know if you had a medical card, you could pay less tax or you could have access to more products, the limits could be different, right? And a lot of people just don't know any better. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, the onus is on us to really educate people and let them know that they, in a lot of states, have options. And I think we really need to advocate for that more. I agree. I agree. I think that outreach has been severely undervalued. Um, I I just, I I really worry that more and more of this is going to go away. But the one thing that makes me happy is that New York is looking at how to get insurance to cover medical cannabis, which I thought was fascinating because when we used to talk about that in California, our thoughts were, well, we can't even touch that until cannabis is handled on the federal level. What are your thoughts on that? I cannot wait for that moment. I know that the pharmaceutical lobby is very, very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also know that, you know, we're seeing more and more data come out that when you have medical cannabis available, you know, prescriptions for opioids go down, right? And the spend on opioids goes down, which I'm sure is problematic for the pharmaceutical companies and they don't love that journey for them. But when a, and from a public health perspective, it's such great news. And Going back to what I was saying earlier, if there's a way that we can make sure that people get the medicine they need, regardless of what that medicine is, right? they should be able to access it. And so if we could have insurance covering it, I mean, that would, in my opinion, be such a godsend. For some, I know so many people who would be using cannabis medicinally if it were covered buy their insurance because they simply can't afford it without it. I mean, look at the prices in California, right? You know, like a nice eighth could cost you a hundred dollars out the door if you get the designer stuff. Right. And so it's like, and I understand you can get, you know, lower quality, you know, lower cost, but for so many people, even 30, $40 for an eighth, that's a lot of money. Right. And so we just need to make sure that we're getting people the medicine that they need when they need it. And having insurance cover it would be amazing. I would love to see that happen. I really hope it happens soon. And New York could be a really interesting um, use case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be fascinating. I was I was actually telling my mother in law about that. And she was saying that she's 84 and she's like, I would 
I would do it. I I would love to do that. I mean, she's <laughs> she never used cannabis before she met me. Actually, she said she tried it once when she was younger, but she, it wasn't for her. And mm. um during during the pandemic, she was having some more health issues and she's had neuropathy. Then it got to the point where she was having to use a walker. And so mm. I sent her some Epsom salts. She was worried about euphoria, but I was like just put it in a pan and stick your feet in there and you won't get high. It'll be fine. And she doesn't have to use her walker. And she actually took the package to her doctor and she was like, this is what you should be telling people to use instead of that gabapentin that makes, you know, makes, sometimes makes people crabby. I know for me, gabapentin made me uh, a little bit bitchy <laughs> <laughs> when I had to use it for my peripheral neuropathy. But it's like, you know, being able to create these opportunities for people to not use pharmaceuticals. It's not, and that's not to say that it's not going to kill the pharmaceutical industry. There are still so many things that we need them for, but there are other things that you can use cannabis for that you don't have to use these pharmaceuticals that have these side effects that create more complications. And we should really be looking at things in a more inclusive manner, like something that's just more well-rounded because we need all our tools to be able to create relief in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. I a thousand percent agree with you. It's about being able to have that power of choice and to be able to make an informed decision about what's right for you and your body, right? Because I know you were telling me before with your own personal journey, you didn't replace anything with cannabis, right? It helped you through your cancer, right? Right. So I'm not, I'm certainly not advocating for people um, to just, ditch all their prescriptions you know there's ones that people really need um but it's being able to see the full spectrum right and yeah. see what's out there and what could work for you and just to have that option that's that's what i'm really advocating for and it's it sounds like in many ways it's 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 also advocacy for for critical thought mhm mm 1000% and that's that's kind of where i'm at in my journalistic career you know, I don't believe that cannabis is for everyone. I really don't. I think that it could be for a lot of people. I think a lot of people could benefit. I think there are a lot of people who are benefiting from it. There's people who don't know they could be benefiting from it, but it might not be for everybody. Um, but I want to be able to offer education and information that feels accessible and digestible and accurate. And then you get to do what you want with that information. And that's it. You know, you have the power to take your life into your into your own hands. And that's what it should be about. And that's um, what I advocate for every day, for sure. I think that that's a really great thing to talk about. And it's incredibly important because I think sometimes the way human beings respond to things that don't work well for them, they're like, well, if it doesn't work well for me, nobody else should be using it either. And when we have these conversations about the fact that we have this endocannabinoid system, we create our own endogenous cannabinoids, a lot of us, a majority of the population respond very well to phytocannabinoids, but some of us don't. And that's okay. Because there are other things you can use and other people it works well with. So you can just step away from it. You don't have to say, since it's bad for me, it's bad for everybody else. But I think it's really important to have those conversations because like we're seeing all these stigma-filled articles that are coming up now that are, they just seem very political in many ways. But we're, you know, it's really pushing that thought of, well, if it's not, if it doesn't fit in my lens, why should anyone else have access to it? Yeah. And that's just, you know, it's such a drag to have that mentality. And I think a lot of people feel that way about a lot of different topics, right? People yeah. can be so absolutist about things. And, you know, I just have always been an advocate for, for personal freedom. Maybe I'm more libertarian in that sort of way, but, you know, we're all individuals, right? And we should be able to make up our minds about what works for us. And every body is different mm -hmm. to your point, right? And so let, let people find out for themselves what's right for them, you know, especially when it comes to cannabis, you know, for me, um, I know CBN is really fantastic. It doesn't make me sleep, but it takes the edge off because I have anxiety. And so I've really been leaning into CBN 
I know other people, they feel like it makes them really tired, but that's not how it works for me. But I'm not going to go around telling everybody like, hey, CBN will cure your anxiety or CBN will put you to sleep. It's like, well, anecdotally, here's what we've experienced, right? And right. so, and I know, and so I think that people just need to be able to make up their own minds and just make informed decisions. And so it's really sad, you know, when people try to push their own personal agendas and maybe they have feelings because of something that happened to them that felt scary or traumatizing. And I, I understand that feeling really strongly, but with something like cannabis, it really comes down to your personal feelings and your personal experience. And you really can't know um, until you try it. And some people might never try it and that's okay too. You know, um, I've met people who have no interest because they feel so anxious about the mere thought of even taking a CBD that they know that if they take the CBD, it's just going to activate them in their bodies. And so maybe for them, it's not worth it, you know, but I think just having an open mind is what matters most. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's when I've done trainings with healthcare professionals, and they're like, what's, what's the dosage you'd use for this? What's the ratio you'd use for that? And I always mention, you know, it's, that's really not how it works. We have, we have an understanding of the baseline of how majority of human beings respond and we're walking chemistry experiments. We all, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's all so different. I mean, we aren't we haven't even begun to have the real conversations about cannabis effects and neurodivergence, which I think is fascinating because every time that there's like a weird reaction from somebody, I never am like, oh, that's scary. Let's not talk about it. I kind of lean in. I'm like, tell me more. What happened? And nine times out of 10, there is an, there is, it seems like it's directly connected to neurodivergence. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think as we see more anecdotal evidence come out, you know, we're going to see correlations like that happen, you know, um, and same thing with like certain cultivars and certain, um, you know, titrations. I, for example, have a friend, Nikki Lolly. She's a really great medical patient advocate in Buffalo. And I love TBI. Nikki. Oh, you know, Nikki. Yeah, oh, yeah. She's awesome. Yeah. She's fantastic. And for her, the strain cereal milk is really profound. You know, it gives her mental clarity. Um, it makes her less depressed. You know, it makes her be able to function during the day. Like she swears by cereal milk and she's tried a lot of different strains, as you know, but when she finds something, she sticks with it. And I had another friend recently who tried a variation of cereal milk. I think it was cereal pie or something like that. And she was like, wow. She's like, something about this strain. She's like, I woke up. I didn't feel depressed, you know, because she has bipolar. And she was saying that it was really, really helpful for her. And I was like, huh, I wonder if there's something to that. You know, like Nikki had a TBI. You have other brain chemistry situations going on. I wonder if there's something in that blend that can really help people um, you know, with these neurological things. So yeah, I'm very curious about what we'll learn. I'm so, so, so fascinated by what we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> yeah. But that's what makes our jobs fun too. It's like we learn something mm -hmm. new every day. I love that. Mm -hmm. Same. No, it's, it's so exciting. I can't wait to see, you know, what the next 20, 30 years as, as we, um, gain more insight and more research is done and more anecdotal evidence comes out and more clinical trials happen. Like, I really can't wait. I can't wait to know about the terpenes that we're not talking about yet and the cannabinoids that we're not talking about yet, because right now, you know, we're, our purview is on just a few and there's so many more, right? Yeah. There's hundreds. Yeah, that's it. Well, and then also what happens when you combine them? Mm -hmm. Like when you're mentioning, you know, like the cereal milk and the cereal milk cross, I was thinking about back in the day, I used to love it. Like when we actually used to measure out flowers and I work behind the bar and he's like, you knew there were just a handful of us doing this stuff, but it was, it was a beautiful time. And, um, and back then somebody actually said to me, you know, someday we'll be looking back on this fondly because it's going to change. And I couldn't ever imagine a day where we wouldn't have these homey little jars and measuring stuff out because it was just such a lovely experience. Uh, but I digress. I wanted mm. to talk about, there was a, there was a flower that we used to have this lady who would come in and she would cultivate um, this flower called Cali widow. It was a white widow, Cali orange cross. And mm. she actually grew it for her asthma because the, 
cultivar behaved as a bronchiodilator. I can't even speak today, just bronchiodilator, and it would help open up her lungs. And I used to think that's interesting, you know, smoking to help calm your lungs down. But I could understand maybe from a vaporization standpoint where that could be helpful. But other people used it for their migraines. And it she would only have like a pound extra. She'd bring it in every month. And we would have people who would be waiting to purchase that, the flowers or the keef, because that was what they used for their migraines because it was a bronchiovasodilator. And, you know, when are we going to be able to break something like that down and figure out how that happens? And when we got into, you know, the regulated market, all of these really interesting cultivars went away because they were cultivated by small growers that didn't have the wherewithal to continue into this regulated market. Yeah, it's really sad to see some of those classic cultivars disappear. And I think, you know, in an age of hype weed, where the market is oftentimes so driven by this consumer demand for the latest drop, the latest, you know, cross, I feel like we're doing our, ourselves a disservice um, for exactly that point. You know, I know, for example, Nikki, to bring her up again, mm-hmm. she gets so anxious when she finds a strain that works for her because to that point, what if it runs out? What if it's not available at the dispensary next time she goes? And I think that's something that a lot of people have concern for. And I know that, you know, the land race strains and some of the classic strains are kind of making a resurgence. People are trying to keep those around. And there's something to be said about stability mm-hmm. as well, right? But, you know, the way that the market is now, it's always the next big thing. And so I wonder how can we strike a balance there to something that's exciting for people, but then also how can we maintain what's, what what works for everybody else, you know, in their... So I don't know like where we're going to end up with the market in that sort of way, but it is something that I'm concerned about. I, th- I think that if it was positioned properly, it would be an excellent opportunity to create more support for smaller cultivators. And I think that that's, it's, it's super, super important that that happen. I mean, it's, it's just like when we look at, you know, high THC products, people not having access to them, having to spend a lot of money on products with less cannabinoids than they need and having to ingest, especially when we're looking at like edibles with like the fats and sugars, having to ingest more than you want of what would be considered inert in many ways because we're talking about the cannabinoids. But because dispensaries don't have the inventory space to carry these products, specialized products for only a small group of people, especially in California where real estate is at a premium. How do we solve problems like that? Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to maybe that, that free market conversation, right? And craft and making sure that we have something for everybody because as we've been saying this whole time, everybody's so different. And there certainly are products that are more popular on the market that continue to sell. And that's great. But yeah, how do we truly offer something for everyone? I wonder if it's going to be one of those things where in the future, people can kind of create their own blends, which I know they're kind of doing at some in, at some level right now, mm-hmm. especially with concentrates. Yeah. Um, you know, being able to kind of bring in your own terpene blends and whatnot. So I kind of wonder how we're going to evolve in that sort of way. Um, for everybody to get what they need and what they want. Um, And I know that like, there was a push, right, for those like DNA tests. I don't know how accurate they are really, um, you know, to tell like what strain is right for you. Um, But I wonder if that is a science that we could um, develop more and see, or if it's just going to be anecdotal. I know in Canada, they have this strain print app. Are you familiar with that? I Yeah, I've heard of the strain print app, but for our listeners, let's talk about it. So the strain print app, um, people can upload products and brands can upload products in the COAs. um, And then people can write anecdotally how it makes them feel. And then you can actually search through like, oh, okay, well, a lot of people said this helps for pain or a lot of people said this helps for sleep. And you can kind of narrow things down just anecdotally Mm -hmm. and then look and compare the COAs like, oh, okay, well, you know, the COAs for these products all have a lot of myrcene. So maybe potentially 
I could start with some mercine if I'm looking for this sort of effect, right? And I think that we need something like that that's more widespread in the states too. But the issue is that every market is so, so different, right? Every state is different. All the rules about COAs in every single state are, is different. Um, and so until I think we get something more streamlined um, in the marketplace, I don't know how it would work or if they would just have certain states on the app, but we need more of that just so that consumers can have a place to go um, to find that information. Because I think if you just go into a dispensary and you look at strain names, you know, or Indica Sativa Hybrid, you're not really getting enough information. I don't think most people even know what a COA is or how to read it for that matter. Um, and that's something that I'm hoping to educate more people about in the future as well, just like how to shop for cannabis and how to find what's right for you. Because at this point, there's definitely a disconnect. Yeah, there is. I, I love the idea of using apps like Strain Print or even doing your own journaling to have mindful consumption, to figure out, to mm -hmm. see the patterns. Because I when I used to work in a dispensary, I can't tell you how many times people would come to me and say, hey... I want to use cannabis for, you know, this, this, or this. And I'm really frustrated because it's not working. And a lot of times they open up a bag and just dump a bunch of products in front of me. And I'd say, well, well what happened? And they would just give me this frustrated look and be like, I, I don't know. All I know is that it didn't work. And so really mm -hmm. like constructing that safe container for experimentation to figure out how things work for you. And, and I mean, that goes for everything in life. Everything we put in our bodies creates a reaction. And we've become so out of touch with our bodies and how they react because we are just, there's so many things in the world going on around us. I mean, you know, our phones ringing, our laptops calling to us, social media, which like if I didn't have to do social media, I don't know that I would. <laughs> I used to right. think it was fun and now it kind of makes me anxious. It's a lot. It's a lot, but you're so right. I mean, people don't know what's right for them and they get lost in the shuffle. And I'm a big proponent of the journaling. You know, that's a great place to start and trying to be really scientific about it, you know, especially with the edibles, you know, because there are so many variables that can can factor into how an edible will affect you. Right. And I don't think people necessarily think about that all the time either. And so trying to be as scientific as possible, like, okay, I'm going to eat the edible at this time after I've eaten this food, right? And like understanding um, so that you can have a really accurate sense of what could happen. Um, but there's there's just so much at play there. So yeah, people need more uh, terp journals. I think we should make some of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. But it's it's funny because it's like you know you have people who really get into it when you you highlight it for them. And you're like, just think about it. But then you have other people who are like, I don't want to do that. I just want to grab my stuff, go, and have a successful experience, and that's it. That's all I want. And I and that's that's when I'm kind of like, well. Have fun. <laughs> what else can you say? It's like, I don't judge. Like, we all have our own processes. But if you want to have a really satisfying experience, I think at least initially, you have to do a little homework on how your body works. Yeah, a thousand percent. I couldn't agree more. And it is unfortunate that, you know, to your point, not everyone has the time uh, or the desire to do that. And I understand that for sure. But being as intentional as possible, um, I think would be really, really helpful for so many people to understand this plant and how it affects them. And it's something that I've definitely had to come to terms with as I've gotten older, right? You know, um, but there's a time and a place and that there's certain things that work for me and certain things that don't. You know, I used to try to be super hardcore and be like, yeah, like I'll smoke anything, anytime, anywhere. I'll eat a hundred milligrams, no problem. Let's go. And now it's like, okay, like slow your roll. Like you don't have to be that way. And as like a steward of the plan, I also just feel like it's up to me to to model, you know, responsible consumption and understanding your body and understanding what works for you. Because the truth is, is that for a lot of people, there's so much nuance there and not everything will work for you. I know for me, you know, there's terpenes that I really like and terpenes that don't agree with me. You know, I'm definitely more of a terpinaline limonene type person you know the the caryophylline and the humulene and the myrcene it's a little too much and I know that now but it's taken me 20 years to get there 
<laughs> see and i i love mercy and i love like heavy indicas i used to i used to smoke granddaddy purple during the day but you know i think too when we first get into this work and it's exciting and there are all these interesting things that we want to try and experience we do get caught up in it. Like I know in the beginning I was I was much like you were. I was like, I'll I'll try everything. Like, let's do it. You know, I also had a much higher tolerance than I do now. Um, which when people say that, you know, they're like, Oh, I'm a cheap date, I have a low tolerance, I'm like, Do you know how much money you save? That's awesome. Like revel in that. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad thing. And I and I'm the same way. And that's another thing, you know, how how our um how our reactions and how our tolerances evolve. You know, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine recently and she said that her tolerance has only continued to climb um, through her life. Whereas mine definitely has gone backwards, which is very interesting. And again, speaks volumes to how different we can be and how many different variables there are in our personal lives and our bodies and our body chemistry that can change uh, how we react to these compounds. It's, it's truly fascinating. It is. And especially when they're more like when they're emerging cannabinoids that we can experience and sometimes replace from the experiences that we've had before. Like I love THC, but during the day for me, a lot of times I, I mean, a little bit will give me some lift, but if I have too much, it's distracting. And I don't get work done because then I start to go into, oh, I have so much to do. What do I start with next? You know, unless I'm doing something creative and then I can do a deep dive. But I find that I really like combinations of CBG and CBD with just like a little bit of THC to help kind of quiet that I, I you know, I, I have kind of an ADD sort of thing where I'll run from one thing to the next. And all of a sudden I'm like, ooh, I've got all this on my plate. Where do I start next? Mm -hmm. But using something like that that is basically non-euphoric because it is a very low amount of THC gives me the focus that I need. I've started to kind of replace a lot of my euphorics with cannabinoids that are more about homeostasis. And I feel that I actually appreciate and enjoy my THC products much more when I do that. Yeah. Isn't that lucky? And isn't that a blessing that we've been able to discern that for ourselves? So many people are still working on it. There's a long way to go for so many people. The journey is so vast and we're really lucky that we know what works for us now. Yeah. Well, and we're also really lucky that we get exposed to a lot of different things that, because it is, I mean, the reality is it's a financial investment to do the experimentation to see what works for you. And that's mm -hmm. why I would really love to see things like sampling coming back where people could take home small samples of things to see what works for them. And I think it would change the model of how we're selling products and what actually creates interest and captures the consumer's imagination. If we could have more experiences like that where there wasn't so much of a financial risk for people. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely need to get back to that. I mean, you go to Sephora, you get all kinds of samples of expensive skincare and makeup, you know, try before you buy. And, you know, to our earlier point, cannabis is cost prohibitive for so many people. And I can understand that sticker shock, you know, especially once you factor in the taxes. So yeah, you're right. Not everybody has the luxury to do that trial and error. That's so, so necessary. So yeah, if we can get back to the old school, wouldn't that be great? It would be. Well, and when right now, like with we didn't even get into green state and your writing. And I feel like, you know, we need to talk about that because it's, <laughs> it's great work and you've done so much. And I just think it's awesome that you're doing work with green state, which has been such a groundbreaking publication around cannabis in the mainstream. What are some of the things that you're working on now? What are you excited about in this next year? You know, what we're trying to do right now with Green State is reach a wider audience. You know, for so long, I've spoken to the industry and to the culture, and that's been such a blessing, and I've loved every minute of it. But as I said earlier, there are so many people out there who could benefit from this information, and they just don't know where to look. And so being able to have this platform is a, it's a true gift. And so what we're trying to do is just educate more people from a baseline as possible and talk about interesting and intriguing things. Talk about, you know, how cannabis is helping people. Talk about the personal stories, the personal journeys that people are having, you know, not just trying to recycle the news and the latest product drops. And there's nothing wrong with that either, but 
just get more nuanced and more granular and explore the different markets, explore some of the things that we haven't been talking about yet, you know, and exploring some of these minor cannabinoids, the terpene blends, seeing what's really working for people. And those are the stories that I really like to share, the stories of healing. So, you know, sharing Nikki's story, for example, and how she's overcome her TBI with cannabis, you know, talking about people who have been seizure free. I know, you know, in our previous conversation, you and I talked about my dad a little bit, and I shared about how when I was growing up, you know, he had very severe epilepsy and he was on a laundry list of pills and they still didn't work. I remember him having seizures very frequently. He couldn't have a driver's license and he went in for a surgery to try to correct the part of the brain that's epileptic and he had a massive stroke and he was paralyzed on one side of his body. He never walked again. And, you know, my um, childhood, he was in nursing homes, assisted living. It was very painful to see. And he passed away in 2020 after long-term complications from his stroke. And knowing what we know now about CBD and epilepsy, the more we learn about that, I can't help but wonder if it could have helped him. And maybe he could have tried it. Who knows if it would have worked, but he could have at least had the chance and maybe he'd be with us today. And knowing that there are still people like him out there, those are the people that I really want to reach and talk to and offer them this information, this testimony, and let them know that this plant is here if they want to activate to it. They don't have to but it's there if they want to try it. And so, you know, we're just trying to reach as many people as we can and offer objective and inclusive information. You know, no, there's no gatekeeping. There's no, there's nothing like that. We just want to make everyone feel welcome because there's a lot of people who feel very intimidated, you know, um, and don't even know where to start because it's so overwhelming. The cannabis scene nowadays, my friend's mom came to me and she was interested in cannabis um, for a few different use cases. And she said, Rochelle, I don't even know what questions to ask you, right? And so we're just trying to figure out, you know, how can we prepare people with knowledge and equip them to feel comfortable and make informed choices? So that's the kind of stuff that we're digging into. I love that. It's it's so essential. It's It's really going to help. It helps people, but it's also going to help shape policy that comes from the public opinion. And we need to be able to empower people with information so that they can make empowered, educated decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a thousand percent. You know, we're still fighting for this plant, right? We're still fighting for reform. You know, we're really free, but we're also not. And there's a lot of people who are still suffering. And so I think that's the other thing, too, is just making sure that we hold space for those who came before us and for those who might still be suffering at the hands um, of criminalization and making sure that we're still fighting for them and fighting so that every single person um, who wants access to this plant can have it and, and feel empowered. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I'm, I'm so grateful to have a colleague like you in the good fight. It's, we have a lot of work to do and, you know, we've made great strides in the past decade and there's, there's just so much more to be done. And on one hand, you know, it's, it uh it keeps us engaged <laughs> you know it's, because if it if it just became a consumer based thing where it was just all fun i don't know that i would be as interested in it it's i the only job i've ever gotten fired from is being a bartender <laughs> and that doesn't mean i don't enjoy a glass of wine now and then but it's like that's just not i i I think a lot of us are in this work because we see it as a work of service. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you've done such uh, an amazing job being a steward of this plant and advocating for what's right and what's just. And I agree, you know, it must be the social justice warriors within us. We just want to keep going. And it's a it's an honor to be able to do so. Yeah. I, and thank you so much for your kind words. It's you know, it's, it would be a lot harder to do my work if I didn't have colleagues like you. 
It's you know, it's, and everyone it's remember, wonderful. And I twice a month. I just enjoy talking to like you so much, please. and I know that Give our listeners are going to really enjoy Let checking out your, your writings and, and and for them like to follow to you touch over and media, to read your content. On How do they do that? And planted with Sarah on well, they can follow me on Instagram at you can